You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. We should do this way more often. We should, we should do this every Sunday. Um, hey, uh, <laughs> oh, this is good, hey. I've kind of forgotten how to do it, um, which is weird because this is, uh, this, we're coming up to 10 years um, of me standing up here, the front, um, at Caroline Springs, um, and uh, next month, this time next month, it'll be 10 years since we got here. I think I got a photo from my, there we are, my, um, I'm the one on the left, in case you won't. Yeah, that was my first night here on the 17th of January. So 10 years coming up pretty quick and um, just overwhelmed really by God's grace in, uh, uh, for, for being ever present over those last 10 years. I, was, I did the, the maths um, and I think this is the 370th different sermon I've preached here. And I think that's kind of maybe... I'm not, I failed all of the maths classes at school, but I think it's something like five and a half thousand hours of study over those ten years um, for, for, for the sermon each week, which it turns out is exactly the number of hours you have to study to become a medical doctor. So, with that in mind, if from now on you could refer to me as <laughs> Dr. Jonathan, that would be... I would appreciate that, and I think you would agree it's well-deserved. Um, I don't say that as any kind of self-congratulations. I know that there are many people who have preached more than I will ever preach, um, but it does kind of speak to something that has been at the core of my own sense of calling to this place. Um, you've heard the story dozens of times about the sense we had of God speaking to us through Suzanne the very first day that we came to check out the, the uh, church and just her, her sense that God wanted someone to come and preach the gospel and that was the, the call that we responded to. That has remained with me through ups and downs throughout this time and, and it's really, I, honestly, I, just a core conviction I have that God is calling the people of this church, myself included, to hear him speak to listen to his words. And I, I have a hunch that if you are here and a member of this family, that's kind of one of the reasons that you're here. That's a value that you have to, to position yourself under God's grace to receive his words, to hear his voice. And I think, like in the culture that we live in now, probably more than any other time in history, we need to come back to hearing God's words because the sheer volume of noise that we encounter day to day, the sheer volume of information, the sheer number of voices speaking to us is greater than it's ever been. The volume in, in mass and loudness, right, is more than it's ever been before. The weight of information that we take in through, obviously, through this internet age that we live in, through the, the, scroll, the constant scrolling that we do through social media, the number and the volume of voices 
is so great. And so in the midst of all of that, not, not, not even to mention the, the, the volume of advertising, right? the amount of people who are selling to us, in the midst of all of that, it's so important that we carve out some silence so that we can hear God speak, so that we can listen to his words. This was the burden of the prophet Isaiah 2,700 years ago. This was the burden of the prophet Isaiah. He was, he was a, a prophet called by God to speak to the people of God at, at, at one of their lowest points. This is the history of Israel, right? Right throughout the Old Covenant, they are a people that God deeply loves and they are a people that are deeply rebellious. They are constantly going off after other gods, listening to other voices. And right here, right at the dawn of their, one of their biggest crushing defeats at the hands of the Assyrians, right, at the, right before that defeat comes, Isaiah calls them one last time. He calls them, come back to God. Return to the God that loves you. Return to the God that gave birth to you. Stop listening to every voice out there in the culture but the voice of the living God. He says to them in the, the, just the preceding chapter, in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 16, through to verse 22, this is his call to them. He says, bind up the testimony, seal up the instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for him. Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, right, the voices of the culture, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Shouldn't they, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? The people walking in darkness have seen... Oh, sorry, that's the next bit I'm getting to. This is what he goes on, verse 20. Go to God's instruction and testimony. Go to his words. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. This is the product, he says, of closing your ears to God's words and opening them to every other voice in the culture around you. And we have seen this play out among the people of God ever since the last 2,700 years. This prophetic voice has held true. Whenever the people of God have closed their ears to the words of God, they have stumbled in darkness. And 
And the warning echoes again to us today, even as we sit here, the opportunity in front of us either to listen or to close our ears. The word of Isaiah is, open them, open your ears to the words of the living God. The good news is that Isaiah doesn't end on that note of despair. He knows that darkness is coming and he knows it's the product of rebellion and closed-earedness. But he also looks ahead. He looks into the future and he sees the coming Messiah. He doesn't know when he's coming. He doesn't know that it's going to be 700 years in the future, but he looks and he sees the coming Messiah. And this is what he says in verse 2 of our reading. He says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. With the coming Messiah, he sees deliverance from darkness. Now what is that light or who is that light? He tells us a couple of verses later. Verse 6, for a child will be born for us. Hmm. A child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. These four titles for the Messiah, Jesus, are the titles that we've been looking at in this series. Up until today... We're going to look at the Eternal Father today. Up until today, it's been pretty straightforward. I gave the the junior preachers the easy ones. So we had the Reverend, Canon, Doctor, Professor Peter Adam come first week and talk to us about Jesus being our wonderful counsellor. Not a counsellor in terms like like in the, the therapeutic sense, but in a governing sense. The government is on his shoulders and he is a wonderful ruler of his people. And then last week we had the right Reverend Bishop Kate Proud come and she shared about Jesus being mighty God and just the, the, the astonishing juxtaposition that the light that dawns in darkness is a child that was born for us, that mighty God would come in human flesh a baby born in a manger. Pretty straightforward stuff. You guys know all of this. But then we come to the third title, Everlasting Father, and it's confusing. How is Jesus an everlasting Father? I don't claim to know or understand the complexity of the Trinity. I don't. I don't know if you do. I'm sure, yeah, you do? Okay. You can explain to me later. But I, I still, I'm not there yet. I haven't fully comprehended the depths of complexity in the Godhead, all right? I do, I do know this, though. I think I've got a diagram to, to explain this, um, which isn't coming up. All right, so here's the thing, though. Um, and you know why? Because I put it on a transparent background, so you can't see it. Anyway, my bad. Um, 
Here, the diagram is very simple. The diagram shows you God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then there are arrows pointing inward from each of those. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. And then there are arrows between each of the persons of the Trinity. God the Father is not the Son. God the Son is not the Spirit. God the Spirit is not the Father. So each of the persons of the Trinity is God, but none of them is each other. There was a heresy in the early, early years of Christianity called modalism where they said, no, God is just, um, he's one God and then he, he, comes sort of at, he comes out as the Father and then he goes back into his closet and then he comes out as the Son and then he goes back in and then sometimes he's the Spirit and, and that was condemned as heresy. That's, God is not, he doesn't put on masks, he doesn't play different characters. God is one God in three persons. So what does it mean that Jesus is an eternal father? How can that be true? How is Jesus fatherly? First thing to know is just what we've just explained. You need to have the position of orthodox Christianity. Jesus is not the father. Isaiah doesn't have in mind here God the father. Isaiah probably doesn't have a conception of the Trinity as we know it. And he's not referring to it, at least in this case. I like the way that Sam Storms explains it. Um, I was reading a little commentary of his on this and one of our good friends with a very cool name. Sam Storms says this, The term Father is not used here in the Trinitarian sense. The prophet is not saying that the Son is also the Father, The word father is a descriptive analogy pointing to Christ's character. He has in mind the tenderness and sensitivity of a compassionate and affectionate father. Jesus, therefore, is fatherly, fatherlike in his treatment of us. We've been exploring this as a church for the last couple of years, the tenderness of Jesus the gentleness of Jesus. Come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I'm lowly and gentle of heart, humble. Isaiah looks forward 700 years and sees the coming Messiah. Not only is he wonderful counselor, not only is he mighty God, Prince of Peace, as we'll see next week, but he's also everlasting or eternal father. And that's that's his character. That's what he's like. He's fatherly and father-like. That's the quality of his character. I wonder if you've ever seen this as you read through the Gospels and noted that this is just what Jesus is like. This is his personality. It's interesting that the Gospels aren't that, um, they're not that uh, occupied with Jesus' inner world, his inner life. If, if the Gospels were written today because we're just obsessed with ourselves, there would be more about his personality, I guess. They weren't that interested in that. They weren't as narcissistic as we are, but uh, they were more interested in what he did and what he said. But if you look at what he did and what he said, you get to see 
the, the character within. You get to see this fatherly, father-like quality. Let me pick out a couple of verses that show this side of Jesus, this, well, not just this side, but that this is the, the content of his character. Matthew 18, this is, this is Jesus, the fatherly Messiah. At that time, Matthew tells us, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offences, for offences will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offence comes. Hear the fatherly voice of Jesus there. That's a father you don't want to mess with. That's a father whose children you don't want to mess with. And again in John 13, listen to how he talks to his very grown-up, very masculine disciples, little children. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the fatherly voice of Jesus with his disciples. Little children, love one another like I've loved you. That's the fatherly love of Jesus, the eternal Father. And of course, very obviously, Jesus' most fatherly act is his greatest one. His most fatherly act is dying on the cross. Sacrificing himself for his children. Here's here's what I can tell you with supreme confidence and no embellishment. I will not hesitate to die for my children. If you're a father here this morning, you know this. It just comes with the territory. You got it from the day that kid was born. This sense that you will die for your children, without hesitation. Am I right? You guys are looking blankly at me. What are, what's going on? I know Guy told me yesterday at the men's breakfast, he was t- telling me the greatest joy he has is in sacrificing for his kids. That's not natural. That's something you get when you become a daddy. I will die for my children. 
The other night, actually, I was uh, putting Judah down to um, tucking him in for bed, and he was, he was, he's been experiencing a bit of anxiety recently, and he was feeling a bit anxious going to sleep, and he said to me, Daddy, have you locked the back door and the front door? I said, yep, yep I've, I've done that. I've locked the back door and the front door. He said, the front door and the back door? Yeah, I've done, yep, definitely both have been locked. He's like, what, well, what if someone comes in and tries to kidnap me and Indy? And I said, that's what I'm here for. You don't need to worry, that's what I'm here for. And he said, but what if, the, what if there's five of them that come in? And I, and I said, Judah, there could be 50 of them with rocket launchers riding velociraptors and I will dominate them and destroy them. Or die trying. And every daddy in this room feels that way. That's what it is to be a daddy. The willingness to die for your children. Now, here's, that's great. But here's where Jesus is so much better. Because Jesus doesn't just die for his children. Jesus dies for his enemies to make them God's children. <laughs> Jesus dies for his enemies to make them God's children. That's what he did when he died for me. And kids, listen, kids, this is why Jesus is so much better than Santa. Me and Santa are buddies, he's fine, but Jesus is so much better than Santa because, right, this is, this is the thing, Father Christmas promises to give you good things if you're a good boy or girl, the father of Christmas, he promises to give you good things even when you're the worst person on earth. Jesus dies for his enemies to make them God's children. He extends grace, which is another word for gift. He extends Christmas gifts to the people who deserve coal. That's how fatherly Jesus is. Now listen, I know that it's fine to talk about the experience of the love of fathers. It's fine to, to talk about the the feelings that fathers have, feelings of love for their children. But I also know that way too many people in our church and outside of it, way too many of them don't know the love of a father. They don't know what it's like to experience the protection or provision or even presence of a father. I think that makes Jesus weep. It ought to make us weep. Way too many of us don't know 
the provision or protection or presence of a father. And even those of us who had the best fathers can barely comprehend how good Jesus is in his fatherly care of us. Because the truth is, if you're a father, you don't only know what I've been talking about, that sense of wanting to protect your children, you also know really, really well how much of a failure you are. That comes with the territory as well, right? You know how flawed you are. And every one of us in our experience of fatherhood, either being fathers or experiencing a father, all of us know that ultimately fathers are going to disappoint us and they're going to leave us. They're going to leave us either because they're bad guys, they're just bad men, or they're going to leave us because they're going to die. One way or the other, our fathers are going to abandon us. And so I think what God is saying to us this morning through these words and in calling us to open our ears to what he's saying, I think what he's saying to us is, come to me. Jesus is standing here this morning saying, come to me. I'm the kind of father who will never leave you. That's what it means to be an eternal father an everlasting father, an ever-present father. He's the kind of father who will never leave you, never forsake you, never let you down. That's the kind of father you want. That's the kind of father he is. I love how this is what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, there is no unfathering Christ And there is no unchilding us. He is everlastingly a father to those who trust in him. There's no unfathering Christ. Some fathers can they can disqualify themselves. They can be unfathered through their actions. And there are some children who abandon their fathers. There are some children who are given away by their parents. When it comes to the fatherhood of Jesus, there is no unfathering him and there is no unchilding us. He is eternal father. So I think this is what he's saying. I think he's looking to, to us this morning, this, this, this gathering of people at Red Door and Caroline Springs, he's looking at us and he's saying, come, come to me. All of you who carry father wounds, come to me. Come to an eternal, everlasting father who will never leave you or forsake you, never abandon you, never disappoint you. Come to me. And, and, and now, right, particularly in this Advent season, remember Advent has these two cries, the two cries of Advent. One is Christ is born. We remember 
Jesus' birth at the first Christmas. The other is come Lord Jesus. We look for his coming again. Remember, Advent just means appearing or coming. Jesus has two. First Christmas and the second coming. And as we look ahead, as we look forward, and we should do this just as much as we look back to that stable and that manger, we look to his coming again and we look toward a father who dearly wants to embrace us forever. He looks at us this morning and he says, come. He's inviting us, beckoning us, like yearning for us. To be his child forever. To live with him, not only as everlasting father, but in an eternal kingdom. That's what the next verse, in verse 7, that's what it speaks of. This is the promise that we have, that the dominion, Jesus' dominion, as wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, that dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice, righteousness, from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. All you need to do is come. I want to invite you to do that. We're going to, for the first time in such a long time, do one of the things I just think is just the best thing about our church, and that's just invite you into a time of ministry, a time of prayer. We're going to sing a couple of songs. Uh, and during that time, I want to invite you just out into the foyer. You can see um, just in front of the door out there, uh, there's a, a blue kind of wall um, in that space, we want to we pray for you. Those of you who have father wounds that need healing, we'd love to pray for that healing to happen. Those of you who have not yet come to Jesus, who have not yet thrown yourself on his mercy and expressed your trust in his goodness, I want to pray for that for you. Actually, you got anything you want to pray for, we'd love to do it with you. There are people there um, who aren't some kind of like uh, level one prayer warrior. They don't have a badge. They haven't got a certificate. They're not wearing a special uniform. They just love you and they want to pray for you. So make use of that time. And whether you go out there to pray or not, let's yearn together. Let's yearn together for the second advent. Let's yearn together that Jesus would come and make all things right, all things just, all things new forever. He rules as the Prince of Peace. That's where we're going next Sunday. I'd love you to come back and hear what it means for us to live under the rule of Jesus, who is Prince of Peace. Until then... Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this word, nearly 3,000 years old, and yet so rich 
so full of promise, so full of optimism about the future. We have received it. We have seen it with our own eyes. The light has dawned. We no longer need to stumble in darkness. We can open our ears to your word and have it as a lamp for our feet. I thank you for these brothers and sisters, for their willingness, their eagerness to set aside time to hear your voice. And pray, Lord, that you would take what I've said and just chuck away all of the nonsense and and let the truth remain, your words that you've spoken to us. I pray that they would find root in our hearts. No bird would come and peck them away, but they would find deep roots that we might increase our trust in you, our experience of you, Lord Jesus, as fatherly and fatherlike, loving, compassionate, protective, eager to be with us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for all that you've been doing and all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name.